Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have uh, Sean Gibbons. He's a Washington Research Foundation Distinguished Investigator and Assistant Professor at the Institute for Systems Biology. I'm going to be talking about uh, microbial systems and virology and things like that. So, Sean, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm doing great, uh, as well as, you know, one can be doing in this uh, pandemic. But, uh, yeah, no, it's good. Uh, it seems like Seattle's maybe maybe rounding the curve a bit on uh, on cases. Excellent. Well, let's talk about uh, probably happier things, you know, your, your research. What, what's the focus of it currently? Well, uh, I'd say, you know, I come at it from as an ecologist and an evolutionary biologist. Uh, I've always been interested in microbial communities, sort of complex adaptive systems. Um, and in the last five or six years, I've applied that sort of ecological and evolutionary evolutionary thinking to the human body. So moving into the human body as an ecosystem. So my lab, yes, we're essentially trying to understand how does variation in the ecology and the evolutionary dynamics of our commensal microbial communities actually drive changes in the molecular phenotype of the host organism and the health state of the host. So we're taking really right. dense measurements uh, of, of the body, not just of the microbiome, right? So we're sequencing the microbiomes of folks that are, that are healthy, that are, that are sick. Um, but in addition to looking at that variation, we're also taking detailed molecular phenotype data on, say, the, the blood metabolome or the proteome or the human genome sequence, uh, dietary questionnaires, lifestyle measurements, things like that, uh, to really try to understand what amount of the variation in the ecology is actually coherent with variation in disease states. And can we actually pin down where the microbiome actually is involved in the etiology of disease and not just sort of hitching a ride on changes that are occurring in the body? Well, okay. So what what kinds of conditions are prevalent enough that within your samples, you'll see them maybe repeatedly, and then you can look at what's changing? Well, the first whack we've taken has been to look at this this large uh, wellness cohort that we have access to, this company called Aravail uh, that was started out of, out of my institute. Um, it was a personalized wellness company. People who were interested in, in kind of gauging and tracking their health over time would, would pay a premium to have their entire bodies quantified. So whole genome sequencing, uh, microbiomes, metabolomes, so on and so forth. And uh, 95% of these folks ended up signing a a waiver saying that they wanted their data to be used for science. And so we ended up with about 3,000-ish folks with this really detailed molecular phenotype data along with microbiomes. And so my group has has been playing with these data and doing some initial analyses. Generally speaking, this cohort is healthy. Uh, or at least people start off healthy when they when they join. Um, it was longitudinal, so so people were tracked over time. Uh, maybe every six months or so, they were sampled, and some people transitioned from from health into disease. 
So there are examples of people transitioning towards sort of metabolic syndromes like like type 2 diabetes. Um, there were a few cancer cases that arose. And so there are, for a small subset right. of folks, um, these transitions that we can track. Uh, but generally, we can we can track things that are, you know, a little more amorphous as, as to how they're connected to health, but have some sort of health interpretation. So the first thing that we did was to look at uh, alpha diversity or species diversity in the gut microbiome. Uh, and as you may know, there's been some connection of alpha diversity to health, although it is ambiguous still, I would say. Uh, but but by and large, if you have a more diverse gut microbiome, you're often you know less susceptible to things like enteric infections or infectious disease. So it's generally well, thought quick, to be quick, to be relatively. Question good. here. Go, go ahead. I've heard that a lot. You know, diversity in the microbiome, but does that mean diversity of strains, diversity of metabolites that the bacteria are making? You know, because there's redundancy. I mean. What does diversity mean? That's a really complex question, and it's a great question. Okay. My my general step back take on the microbiome is that um, you know there's this universe of microbial diversity that's out there, many different species that we can select subsets of. Each one of us, when we're born, we get colonized by our mothers and by our environments, and there are many different combinations and sets of species that achieve a healthy metabolic output. Right? There are many, many ways to construct a healthy microbiome. And we're just kind of beginning to understand how that assembly works and what are the redundancies and, and how, how can you construct one of these healthy microbiota. Um, but generally speaking, there is a certain uh, level of alpha diversity. And there's a couple ways of quantifying this, right? You can quantify it by the number of species that are present in a system. Uh, but it can also be quantified as, as sort of the evenness of abundances kind of partitioned among those species. So how dominant is any one species over the others? Um, and the emerging picture is below a threshold. If your diversity falls below a threshold, you seem to be much more uh, vulnerable to infectious disease like Clostridium difficile or other enteric infections. But when you get to the higher end, it becomes... Uh, more ambiguous. We don't quite understand what's going on. But this alpha diversity signal is actually integrating a lot of the complexity of the underlying community state or community structures that can be different among many people, but kind of converge upon a metabolically healthy state. And so you do get a sort of higher level readout of that with, with alpha diversity. And um, one thing that we found at the high end of diversity is, um, you know, we, we see this threshold effect where if, if you have too low, that's obviously bad. And usually it's associated with diarrhea and abdominal pain. But on the high end of diversity, we, we see other, other patterns emerge where uh, actually you can have constipation. Really high levels of alpha diversity can be positively associated with constipation uh, and certain protein fermentation byproducts in the bloodstream that are, that are not so good for us, uh, that are potentially toxic to, to certain organs in our bodies. Um, well, okay. So that's um, question here. Yeah. In people that have uh, not a lot of diversity, do you think that that's a problem because the, uh, the you know the metabolites produced by the bacteria are are some missing, or some just low enough prevalence that you know the, the the host the human body needs them and just is not getting enough of them? Like, what do you think causes like what is what is dysbiosis? What does it mean in the context of diversity? What's missing? Well, what's there too much of? 
Yeah, I mean, again, really, really complicated question. And I think there are many different ecosystem services that the microbiome provides. And so just to go back to what, what we were talking about before, um, sort of the prophylaxis to invasive pathogens, right? Whether or not your system can keep out the bad guys. Uh, I think you can think about this in terms of, um, of restoration ecology or kind of large-scale ecology, right? If you have a, a forest fire rip through, through an ecosystem or you, you build a road through a prairie, you know, at those points where you disturb the native ecology of the system, those become entry points to invasive organisms, invasive weedy type species. And we see the same exact thing happen in the gut, uh, right? If you take antibiotics, um, these are windows of opportunity for organisms like C. diff uh, to get a foothold and, um, and maybe not cause disease, but at least colonize and get into your system. And then maybe in the future cause disease. And basically what's happening there... Like a- Oh, I was going to ask, is C. diff always present in people just in low amounts, or is it not there at all, and all of a sudden it's there? No, and uh, it's actually not quite well known how prevalent it is in the population. Some people do carry it uh, and have no disease symptoms. So there's actually an interesting um, study from my postdoc lab, Eric Alms group. There were these two time series that were taken, these two individuals, and one of them got food poisoning. Uh, during the course of this this sequencing for about a year and a half, they sequenced their microbiomes every day. And this person got a salmonella infection. And uh, just following that salmonella infection, uh, using qPCR, they found um, the appearance of C. diff. C. diff was able to colonize him, this person, and stick in their system at, at really low abundance after this disturbance event and had been absent from their system prior to that. So we know that it colonizes certain people, it doesn't cause disease, but it sits in wait. And so if, if that person had another disruptive event, maybe they got sick again or they had a big dose of antibiotics, well, then there's another window of opportunity for perhaps C. diff to, to cause disease. But, but um, just going back to what I was saying before to kind of finish my point, what, 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 what is happening here essentially what, what seems to be going on, but based on what we know about the molecular biology and metabolism going on in the system is that there is a certain amount of metabolic niche space that's available in the gut for things to grow. Normally, our commensal organisms are soaking up as much of that niche space as as they can. They're consuming a lot of that metabolic capacity. If you disrupt the system, if some of those organisms die off and they're no longer able to to eat all of those resources, suddenly there's excess resource for an invasive species or a weedy species to to actually get in and start consuming those resources and, and establish a foothold. So the, the ability of our native ecology to keep out the pathogens is essentially just the utilization of these metabolic resources that would otherwise be available to the pathogens. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what about uh, the role of bacteriophages? Do you look at like phage predation and uh, somehow figure that out You know, as some, when, you, when you're looking at all these factors? I mean, I'm sure that phage play a, a large role. My group doesn't really look into phage at all. Um, we, have, we see them quite often when you do metagenomic sequencing. You definitely see phage sequences, whether or not those phage are actual virions or whether they're integrated into the genome, in a sort of lysogenic lifestyle uh, is less clear. And so targeted methods that, that go towards sequ- sequencing actual virions or enriching for phage from stool uh, is, is probably the way to go there. But um, yeah, we don't really do much work on that ourselves. And amongst the bacteria, you know, in your gut, what does the competition look like? Is it 
you know, okay, I, I get access to this resource and I proliferate more than you, so I starve you out. Or there are actual like bacteria to bacteria somehow attacks. Like what's the, you know, how do they commingle? How do they work together or not work together? It's, it's sort of all happening at once. It's, uh, it, it's very complex in there. I mean, in the case of um, C. diff, right, there's a few signals that, you know, if the system is disrupted, C. diff will essentially wake up and notice it. Uh, one is um, there are these bile acids that are produced in our, in our small intestine that we excrete ourselves into our small intestine in order to, to absorb fat. Uh, we, we excrete what are called primary bile acids. These are the ones we produce ourselves. But our microbes chew on those primary bile acids and convert them into what are called secondary bile acids. And uh, C. diff, if it notices primary bile acids in the lower colon, its spores germinate. They, they, they wake up. Uh, normally, these, these metabolites aren't present in the lower colon because our native microbiota are converting them to secondary bile acids before they could ever get down there. But it is a signal that, our, that there's a disruption in the native ecology if those metabolites reach the lower colon. And then there are other re resources like, I think, triolose or certain sugars that um, are normally eaten up probably by our commensals, but uh, when they become available to something like C. diff, suddenly it is able to grow. So there are these um, signals, signaling, signaling molecules, in addition to sort of direct metabolic competition going on between our commensals and pathogens. But in addition to that, you also see direct warfare. So, you know, there are organisms like in the Bacteroidetes phylum that have these type 6 secretion systems. There are these little syringe-like uh, structures on the outside of cells that are actually co-opted from, from bacteriophage tails. Uh, and they use these little syringes to poke holes in each other's membranes and inject poison into the other cell. Uh, oh, wow. so these are kind of direct contact, contact uh, warfare that's going on. And in addition to that, you know, there's the production of antibiotics and antimicrobial peptides. Um, pretty much everything you can imagine is, is probably going on in there. What do they call those little uh, phage-derived uh, syringes? These are type 6 secretion systems. Oh, okay. So that's what some viral DNA that uh, the bacteria has taken in and endogenized, and now it repurposes it as a tool to attack other bacteria? Yes, exactly. Uh, usually have these toxin antitoxin systems. And so if you have one of these syringes, usually you also have a toxin that, that is kind of injected by the syringe. And um, you, you also probably carry the antitoxin to that same toxin. So if you end up injecting one of your own daughter cells, one of your own progeny, you don't end up killing them. So your, your own population is protected, but if another cell doesn't have this antitoxin, then they are, uh, are killed by the poison. And these are um, ancient gene families in, in, in bacteria, and they've been around for a while. So some, somewhere along the line, probably billions of years ago, yeah, a bacterium co-opted this structure from a phage to be able to do this. That's amazing. Hmm. So what, uh, what kind of correlations have you noticed in your data? Um, you know, the, mar the biomarkers of the person that you're sampling, not just their bacteria, but their own biomarkers. Uh, any correlation you see when they get uh, food poisoning or whatever other infection? Uh, any interesting trends you see? Yeah, we, I mean, <laughs> too many to, to name, but I'll, I'll focus on a couple maybe specific stories. So in in the blood, we've actually been able to see a really intimate connection between the small molecule metabolites that are circulating in the bloodstream of humans and the structure of their microbiota. 
Uh, so we just published a paper this last summer showing that we could predict the, the diversity, the alpha diversity of a person's gut microbiome uh, using a model that included 40 metabolites from their bloodstream. So we could actually see something about the structure of someone's microbiome through their blood, uh, just kind of this intimate connection between the metabolites that are produced in the gut and those that are found in the bloodstream, bathing all of our organs, circulating across our entire bodies. A lot of the metabolites that are in our bloodstream are coming from our microbiota. If you looked at the specific metabolites that were predictive, um, you found some patterns that were kind of sanity checks, right? These, me these metabolites that are only there because of the, the activity of the microbiota. So you found things like hippurate and cinnamoglycine. Uh, and these are breakdown products from polyphenols or complex plant polysaccharides in our diets that we aren't, aren't able to absorb ourselves, but our microbiota can break them down into smaller molecules like benzoate that get absorbed. Then that benzoate travels to our liver and has a glycine added to it, uh, and that becomes hippurate, right? So if we see hippurate, it's a signal of eating you know, plants, essentially. Uh, we see bile acids, secondary bile acids. These are only produced by our microbiota. They wouldn't be there in, in a, say, for example, a sterile mouse model. If you, if you grow a mouse sterilely, they don't have any of these secondary bile acids. They require bacterial metabolism to be present. Um, and then we see a lot of other interesting kind of endocrine-like signals where some of our hormones appear to be modulated by our microbiota or, or vice versa. Um, one of the most predictive metabolites that we found was a testosterone derivative. Uh, it was the most strongly correlated with diversity in both men and women, although it is more abundant in men than it was in women. Uh, and we think that perhaps it is the microbiota that are that are chewing on testosterone and uh, can being and converting it into this derivative, and then that's what we're that's why we're seeing this particular signal. Um, but I think you can you could almost think of the microbiota as a kind of endocrine organ. It is modulating the circulation of these different hormones and metabolites that are then going on to have various effects uh, in, in the body. So that's sort of like a baseline of, of what, what we're learning from, from healthy people. And then I'll tell you one, one quick story about how we're applying this to um, not, not exactly disease, but like how does this relate to health? So this really talented postdoc in, uh, in my colleague's lab on a collaboration between our, our groups, Tomasz Momanski, is doing an analysis of aging and the microbiome. And uh, what we're finding is that there are a couple of different trajectories with human aging that, that are apparent in the data set. So we have two data sets. One is this one I talked about before, this Arabelle data set, and it has people between the ages of 18 and, and uh, I think people in their mid-80s. So it spans the entire sort of lifespan of, of a human being. And we have another data set called Mr. Oss. It's this cohort of men, about a thousand men, uh, the original purpose of that study was to study osteoporosis in men, which is sort of an understudied uh, phenomenon. Um, but they had microbiome data for these folks in addition to a bunch of sort of molecular data on their, on their phenotypes. And we wanted to ask this question, okay, what's going on with, with aging in the microbiome? In the literature, there's this divergence of, of opinion. Actually, you see two different patterns. Um, you see that in kind of elderly people who are maybe less healthy, that are in maybe assisted living conditions, their microbiomes, as they get towards the end of their life, sort of drop in diversity. They become less and less diverse, and you see the sort of main maintenance or increasing in abundance of these core microbes that tend to be shared across multiple, many people. However, when you look at centenarians, these people in these like blue zones across the world that, that live really, really long, 
they actually show uh, an increase in diversity over time in their microbiota and a drop in the abundance of these core taxa. Uh, so we were wondering if we could we could see a similar pattern in, in our data. And indeed we did. We, we could actually segregate the, the population into those, those who were following sort of a healthy trajectory and those who were not. And those on a healthy trajectory, yeah, you saw this drop in, in core taxa. And in particular, uh, the most common um, genus in, in the Western world, at least, in, in our microbiome, Bacteroides, decreases in abundance with age in, in these very old people who are, who are healthy. But this pattern was absent from folks that, that were not healthy and that were not aging in a healthy way. Um, we were able to look in the bloodstream and see what metabolites are associated with this decrease in bacteroides abundance. And there was the strongest hit that we got was this phenylacetoglutamine. Uh, and this was a biomarker that had been previously um, proposed as a biomarker of healthy aging in a couple of other centenarian studies. It's actually patented to be a biomarker for healthy aging. Uh, in addition to a bunch of other metabolites like indoles and uh, secondary bile acids, and a lot of these that came up as hits have actually been shown in animal models to extend lifespan. So indoles in, in mice and in Drosophila have been shown to extend lifespan in addition to this uh, secondary bile acid that we found was, was found to extend lifespan in Drosophila. So a lot of these metabolic hits that are associated with this ecological variation seem to be associated with, with healthy aging. Uh, and sort of the kicker of that whole analysis was that we had follow-up data on the, the very elderly population that we were following, this Mr. Oz cohort, where we had people that came in for a checkup and then a four-year follow-up. And we were able to partition that population and the people who showed this sort of low bacteroides pattern and those who had this higher level of bacteroides in their guts at the, at the initial visit. And those with lower bacteroides in their gut were significantly less likely to die in that four-year period. Uh, so it seems that this pattern in the gut was actually predictive of mortality. Um, so maybe I'll stop that's there because that's, that was that's sort so, of long-winded. Yeah, yeah. But um, who is leading and who is lagging, do you think? Is it that our uh, our cells are changing? You know, they're aging. They're becoming senescent. And the bacterial community is just <clears throat> a lot more flexible and adaptive. And so it changes as a lagging factor once our cells change. Or do you think it's the reverse or is it a back and forth? You know, it's a great question. And, and we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, whether it's correlation or causation is, is you know, that's, that's a burning question. Um, the gold standard of causality is to do mouse experiments, right? They're to be able to actually intervene and see what the, what the outcome of that intervention is. Um, but there was a recent um, uh, cell paper, a, a letter to the editor sort of um, railing against mouse models as, you know, even though they're the gold standard for causality, you know, nine times out of 10, when you find something that works in mice, it doesn't actually translate to humans. Uh, and so I think like what, what, what is really crucial is, is taking longitudinal data from humans and trying to back out better, you know, trying to get a little bit beyond correlation and closer to causation in, in human data itself, rather than having to rely on, on mouse models. So we get some hints at what might be going on from a causal standpoint on the microbiome side, right? Like some of these, some of these metabolites have been shown in animal models to actually induce uh, the, the, a longer lifespan, right? So like indoles, for example, have been shown to do this. So perhaps there is some, some feedback there, whether or not the, the body is initially driving the microbiome to change, and then that's having a feedback on 
prolonged lifespan or the microbiome is somehow precipitating something in the body, uh, this is all to be determined. Um, and there's, a, there's actually an effort in my group currently to, to develop methods that allow us to go beyond correlation and get closer to causation. So my postdoc, Christian Diener, is, is building a model currently where, um, well, just to step back quickly, this Aerial data set, we noticed that it was very difficult to get people to poop and give blood on the same day. Um, so what they were calling the same time point in the data, there were actually a few day lag between between when the blood was sampled, when the poop was sampled. Sometimes the blood was a few days after, sometimes the blood was a few days before, but we had timestamps for, for when these different samples were collected. And so we're asking the question currently, um, if you take this temporal asymmetry into account, can you ask, you know, are there situations where if you measure the blood first, and the microbiome second, and you, you get a strong correlation, say, between a metabolite and a microbe. But if you switch that temporal order where the poop comes first and the blood comes second, and that same association dissipates, if you lose it in the other temporal direction, well, that starts to tell you something about causality, right? You start to begin to put an arrow on the association and ask whether or not the microbe is causing a change in the blood or whether the blood is causing a change in the microbe and not vice versa. So we are developing methods to try to to try to get at those types of questions, but that's that's the crux of all of this, right? How do we actually get causality? Yeah. Well, blood, I would think, would be you know it's hard to poop on command, but um, you know if you did blood before and after people ate, you know, on somewhat of a regular basis, you'd also see changes there, which maybe then you could uh, interpret changes in the gut bacteria because of that. You know, if you see changes in metabolites, if something surges. 20, 30 minutes after eating and the body can't normally make it, it had to have come from bacteria. Maybe you can figure out things that way. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, we are, I'm, I'm currently writing R01 proposals to try to get grants funded to do this kind of thing. We're actually trying to get a study going with uh, Joanna Lampe at the Fred Hutch here in Seattle. Uh, she, she does feeding studies where we do actually do that that exact thing. We, we, we give people a controlled diet. And we measure their stool and their blood before and after a meal and, and ask these types of questions. That's exactly that's exactly how we would get at that kind of a thing. Is there any data that's come out of it yet or it's too soon? Well, um, we don't have data in, in humans from feeding studies currently. But uh, what we have been doing are what are called ex vivos, where we actually take a stool sample from a person into the lab. Uh, and we have an anaerobic chamber uh, at the Institute where we can essentially simulate the atmospheric conditions in the colon and the temperature. And we can take that stool, we can turn it to soup and put it into 96 well deep well plates. And I can then add various dietary components to those wells and ask, you know, over the course of a couple of hours of incubation, what do the microbes from this person's gut microbiome do with this particular input metabolite? So, you know, if I feed this person a banana, what comes out of their microbiome? And so inulin is, is, you know, the common fiber in a banana. We've actually done this experiment with, it with a couple of different people. And we find that you feed, you feed two di different people's microbiomes, that fiber from bananas, and their outputs are different, right? Their, their microbiomes give different metabolic outputs. Uh, and one of the big thrusts of our group is, is being able to predict these differences through metabolic modeling oh. and through these, these ex vivo experiments. How different? I mean, completely different metabolites or just less or more of some? Well, let's see. Uh, it depends on how deep you want to dive into the data, but let's we can talk about first maybe the short chain fatty acids, right? 
these these are these are well known to be involved in, in health and disease in the gut. Right, butyrate, for example, is is known to be anti-inflammatory. It's actually also an energy source for colonocytes and the lining of the gut. Um, if you look at say person A and person B who both got got inulin, <clears throat> you find that their amount of acetate and butyrate that were produced from that same exact amount of inulin was the same. So there was no significant difference in the production of those two short-chain fatty acids. But propionate, this the third kind of most abundant short-chain fatty acid produced in the gut, it was quite significantly different between the two. One of them, I think, produced about 30% more of this particular short-chain fatty acid than the other. Um, so that's sort of at a high level short-chain fatty acids. But if you can, if you want to dive in deeper, you know, we saw all kinds of cool stuff. So if you did untargeted metabolomics, we saw that one of these individuals was taking uh, Lipitor, they're taking a statin, and we saw that their microbiome was actually consuming the statin, which I think is unknown, right? That the, really? that the microbes are actually breaking down the statin. Um, and, you know, we, we saw other stuff, like in the other donor, we saw that the microbiome was actually consuming hippurate. So normally we think of hippurate, like benzoate is produced by the microbiome, which goes into the blood. And then our liver make, turns that benzoate into a hippurate. But what was unknown is that hippurate would maybe leak back into the gut and that the microbes would be able to cleave the glycine off of that hippurate in order to get nitrogen from, from that, uh, that hippurate molecule. But it seems that, that that is potentially a route by which the host is provisioning the microbiota with nitrogen by, by, by cleaving these conjugated uh, amino acids off of, these, off of these molecules. There's all kinds of interesting um, fine-scale metabolism going on in there that, that we're just starting to dig into. Yeah, when you uh, take a drug, for instance, and they look for heart or kidney or whatever other kind of toxicity, uh, they're not looking for microbiome toxicity or uh, it, it reducing the effectiveness of a drug by consuming it or it changing a drug so that it is toxic and you might not ever know. So it seems like that uh, needs to be an added component that uh, all drugs would exactly. be against your microbiome. <laughs> Yeah, it's part of the future of you know what you, what you would call personalized medicine, right? There's there's a lot of work on pharmacogenomics, right? depending on what your genome is, what drugs should you take. Um, but probably almost equally important is depending on your microbiome, you should maybe modulate the dosage of drug you take or the type of drug you take because they're eating those drugs too. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so uh, since this is so complex, I mean, what are the ways forward that you see? What what are some of the most important factors to elucidate so that we can get a handle on how we can at least harness the microbiome and learn from it and, you know, make better drugs or, uh, you know, have better treatments? What path are you taking forward? I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the work that needs to be done is synthesis and integration of knowledge that exists, right? I'd say that the last decade, decade and a half of the microbiome field has been natural history, right? Like like Alexander von Humboldt or, or Darwin going to South America and walking around and classifying what's there and what are they doing and who's eating who. And so we built up these, these databases that, that include a lot of this information, that include a lot of information on the metabolism of various organisms in the gut, things that could be cultured and grown and, and manipulated. So we can take a lot of that and we can start to synthesize, integrate it to build models multi-scale models that allow us to start to, to integrate that complexity to the point where we can make predictions. Um, one thing we're doing in the lab, uh, again, this is my postdoc, Christian Diener. 
he's, he's built a metabolic model of the gut microbiome. So we were able to pull down about 818 whole genome metabolic models from a resource called Agora. Uh, and um, Christian has integrated these into a multi-scale, what he's calling metagenome scale metabolic model that is able to sort of simulate the, the cross-feeding and interactions, metabolic interactions between hundreds of microbes uh, in a given person's gut. And you can personalize this simulation to an individual's data. So I could sequence your metagenome and I can look at the abundances of all the different species in your particular system. And then you can initialize this metabolic model with those same levels of abundance, right? And then we can also customize the dietary input. So there are about a dozen pre-configured diets that you can pull down from the virtual metabolic human where they've been, all the components have been broken down into their macular, macromolecular uh, constituents. Um, and so you can, you can find one of those diets that most closely matches yours, or you can try to build your own custom um, molecular diet. It takes a lot of work, but you can do it. And uh, what it allows us to do is to sort of simulate what we believe the metabolic output of a given person's microbiome would be. Uh, and, and it allows you to do an enormous number of experiments that wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do in real life, right? So I could, I could feed you a thousand different combinations of probiotics or prebiotics uh, and see what happens in silico and perhaps design optimal strategies for, um, for in vivo or clinical applications. Um, and so we've built the model and we're just beginning to, to start to test it by, by doing things like feeding studies, ex vivo uh, experiments and so on. But I think, yes, I think the future to a large extent is, is data integration, multi-omic data integration to, to understand more about how all these different levels of the system are interacting. Uh, and beyond that, I think, you know, having just having more data, more longitudinal data from humans is useful for pulling, for backing out things like causality. Um, but ultimately, you know, what we really want, what we really need are uh, interventional type studies where you change something in someone's diet and then, and then you measure what happens afterwards. Uh, and this is going to allow us to get to, to really move the microbiome into clinical medicine eventually by having that information. Yeah, I guess you could approximate the effects of diet by having, you know, picturing a thousand wells with bacteria in each, and then you're feeding different foods to each well or, you know, the food to 10 different wells and, and seeing the effect. And maybe that's a good proxy for what's going on in the, in the body. Definitely. And, you know, we've done a little bit of that and yeah, it gets, it gets you somewhere in closer to, to something like causality. Right. So, you know, the two manipulations we've done so far has been inulin and tryptophan and, and, you know, tryptophan is, it's, we, we add this to the microbiome because we know that it, it can be broken down into what are called indole sort of derivatives. And these are very important to human health. Uh, but whether or not, you know, the presence of these indoles in the, in the bloodstream is, is causal by the microbiome, you know, it hasn't been explicitly demonstrated, but we were actually able to show that if you, yes, if you culture a person's microbiome with tryptophan, you do get production of these indoles and you get, can kind of see which ones are, are more abundant than others. And, um, yeah, but somewhere somewhere between these types of ex vivo experiments uh, and sort of in vivo uh, manipulation, diet studies, uh, and modeling, the convergence of all these different things is going to get us close to where we need to be. Hmm. Well, very good, Sean. What what do you think the uh, the near term future holds? The next year or so, and then maybe the next five years. What progress do you think is possible? Um, that's a good 
question what progress is possible. I think that you're, we're going to have to wait for a few years to see really dramatic progress. I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff in the works currently. Um, there are ongoing clinical trials by, by several companies looking at cocktails of microbes as replacements for fecal transplants, if you've heard of these. Um, there you know, companies like Vendanta or Finch. Um, they have several of these in the works. And the second that one of these um, passes a phase three clinical trial and gets approved by the FDA, suddenly um, you know, microbiome therapeutics as a field goes from you know, tens of billions of dollars as an industry to, to hundreds of billions of dollars as an industry. So I think the next phase of this next sort of cash infusion of uh, into the microbiome field for these clinical trials is going to to perhaps be seen in the next year or two when one of these uh, FMT replacement treatments um, actually proves to be effective. And I, I'm fairly hopeful that 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 they will, and then that's going to free up a lot of resources for further development, to develop more complex interventions, interventions that include things like dietary manipulation and manipulation of the microbiota. Um, but, I, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. Another thing that can change is novel technologies, right? So, you know, I, I want to look at both evolution and ecology from a given data set. But, you know, for, from the ecology side, we can get short read sequence data from, from a stool sample, and we can say something about what species are there, what genes are there. But we can't really pull out what genomes are there because to, to assemble, you know, population scale genomic information from short read data, it, it's, it's very messy. It's very difficult. And so, you know, long read sequencing is going to allow us to, to, to look at population scale variation and evolution in the microbiome. But, you know, if in the future we're able to actually get essentially long read sequencing at, at scale, at the metagenomic scale, you know, millions and millions of these long reads from a single sample, Suddenly, um, I think that would be a game changer for, for our field and that we can sort of get both ecological and evolutionary insight from the same set of samples. And as prices go down, uh, we're, we'll be able to collect more longitudinal information uh, from people uh, and more multiomic information from people, and that will also drive innovation. Well, very good. Well, what's, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and keep up? Well, uh, they, can, they can visit the lab's website. Uh, which is gibbons.isbscience.org, uh, and all the contact information is there. Okay, well, very good. Well, Sean, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.